This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, for surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the 10th day of Christmas. Tuesday will be the 12th day of Christmas. So begins the season of Epiphany. It will take us all the way now to Ash Wednesday. Epiphany, meaning to reveal, to show, to make manifest. In this case, we celebrate Matthew's story about magi, people who studied the stars. Uh, scholars believe these best-known astrologers came from Persia. They saw some unusual light in the heavens, a star, they called it, that led them westward, finally to Judea, to the little town of Bethlehem, where these magi saw Mary's baby Jesus. According to the Bible, they were the first non-Jews or Gentiles to see Jesus whom we would later know as the Christ, the Messiah of God, the Lord in flesh and blood. The text for today has four important things, I believe, and I've underlined them. Number one, grace was given to me. Grace is unmerited love, undeserved favor. The Lord has made His face to shine upon you. The Lord has lifted up His countenance upon you. The Lord is willing to give you His shalom now and forever. God's love has been made known to all who are willing to hear it, to see it. Grace was given to me. Christmas Eve day I knew was going to be a long one for me. I began early uh, with hospital calls out at St. Francis Hospital. One of the pink ladies who works there at the desk said, Dr. Biggs, do you have to work on Christmas Eve? And I said, only 18 hours if I'm lucky. I hope to be home a little before 1 o'clock in the morning. But before our four big services began that day, I was looking through the pages of the Wall Street Journal. And I came across an article written by Hans von Spakovsky, he was saying that here on the 24th of December, there are lots of people talking about how far the stock market has fallen this year. Others are writing about how long it will be before the stock market goes up again. How long will the recession last? How soon can we hope prosperity comes back to our country and other countries of the world? But for my family and me, he said, Today will be the day when we remember the best Christmas story we know in my family. Our story occurred, he said, Christmas 1919. My father 
was a young officer in the Russian army when the Bolsheviks attempted to overthrow the government. Of course, in time they were successful. It's known as the Bolshevik Revolution. Hans wrote, My father's unit would fight and then retreat, fight and then retreat because they were vastly outnumbered by the Bolshevik forces. And finally, in mid-December, they had reached the edge of the Arctic Circle, still pursued by the Bolsheviks and finally surrounded by the Bolsheviks. His small group had run out of ammunition. They had run out of food. The biggest body said, it's over. We cannot win. We cannot win. Let's surrender. They've said they'll let us go back to our families. But Hans wrote, my father knew these Bolsheviks will kill us all. At least the officers. We will never see our families again. We will die in this frozen wasteland. And no one will know exactly what happened to us. So he started talking to some of his closest friends and said to them, you know the wind is going to blow again. You know it's going to snow again. And when the wind blows and the snow falls, I say we ski through the Bolshevik lines. They had cross-country skis. It's part of the outfitting of the Russian army. Fifteen other guys said they wanted to go with him. One woman said, I want to go with you. We're going to go as fast as we can. I can keep up, she said. And 16 men and one woman waited for the wind to blow and the snow to fall. And in the darkest of the night, they started skiing toward the Bolshevik lines. And surely enough, with that wind-driven snow, they were able to get through the Bolshevik lines. They did not know if they were being pursued or not, but they set their compasses for Finland several hundred miles away. They had skied for days and nights. Night ran into day, day into night, because the days are so short in mid to late December. If the sun came up at all, it was about 10.30 in the morning. It would set about 1.30 in the afternoon. The rest of the time, it was completely dark. And most of those days, it was completely cloud-covered. You could see almost nothing. Late one evening, they had run out of what little ration they had. They had some beeswax candles and they started chewing on those candles just to try to sustain themselves. They could pick up snow, of course, for moisture, but they had no food. When the woman, who had in fact kept up with those 16 guys, said, you know what tomorrow is? They didn't have a clue. It's Christmas Eve, she said. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve. They all nodded. That's right. That's right, it is Christmas Eve. They were all Russian Orthodox Christians. And so the next afternoon late, when it had already gotten dark, they found in a small clearing one little evergreen. Uh, she said she had a blouse in her knapsack that had a few ribbons on it. And they cut those ribbons off her blouse and tied them under the branches of this little tree. They still had a few little stubs of candles and they planted them in the snow around this little tree and lighted them. And then they held hands around this little tree and they said a prayer. And they even sang very softly a Christmas carol. And then they bedded down for the night. And the next morning they got up on their skis again and made it all the way to Finland. Hans said, when you have a story like that, you know that my father had to make a decision. He would never see his parents alive again. But if he had surrendered and been shot in the snow, he would never have seen his parents alive again. He was eventually able to make his way all the way to Germany and in time all the way to the United States of America, where a whole new life began 
He could get married. He could become a father. The grace of God, my father said that Christmas Eve in the snow around that little tree with a prayer and a carol, he felt the peace and grace of God as he never had before. Number two, this author says, this grace and the power that was in it, the power of grace. You know this word power because I've told you about it before. In Greek, it's dunamis, from which we get dynamite, dynamic, dynamo, all of those words. In the verb form, it means I am able, or he is able, or she is able, we are able. In the noun, it means power. The power of grace. We have seen God's power in raising His Son Jesus from the dead. But we experience that power as God transforms us. Takes us from where we once were to where He wants us to be. That helps us become more and more like what He always had in mind. Terry Ashcroft is a Methodist preacher's wife over in Arkansas, not far from us. She has written that some years ago she and her husband had tried without success, to become parents. They had had tests run and finally were told, if you're ever going to be parents, perhaps you should consider adoption. She said, we'd waited so long, been so patient, then gone through so many tests that local adoption agencies said, you're too old. We have far younger ones who want babies now. And so they tried an international agency. And only after lots more testing and lots of correspondence, they were told they were going to be given a South Korean baby. And this little eight-month-old came to live with Terry and her husband. But she said when she called her mom and dad that the baby is here. We're coming over to show him to you. Her mother said, Terry, I think you need to just remember that your father fought in the Korean War. And when you called us before and said you had been granted this baby, your daddy said, I fought in Korea and I lost some of my best friends there. I just wanted you to be aware. Well, she said, my husband and I talked about it and decided, let's face this right up front. We drove to my mother and father's house about 45 minutes away. And when we walked in, my dad didn't get it, even get up, she said. He is at that stage in his life. He was in an old maroon recliner and he rarely got up. He was one of that generation that really didn't express emotions of any kind, whether he was glad to see you or not. We walked right in. My mother hugged this sweet, precious eight-month-old we decided to name Matthew. And then I walked him right across the room in my arms and put him down in my daddy's lap and said, Dad, meet your grandson. This is Matthew. And I turned to walk over to talk to my mother. And I heard this precious baby of ours gurgle a little bit. I looked around. He had a big smile on his face. And my dad smiled back at him and said to me, well, Terry, he looks like a good boy. And I said, thank you very much. And I went in the kitchen to talk with my mother. But they seemed to get along fine. And every time we were over visiting with them, I just walked straight in and said, Dad, here's Matthew, and put him down in his lap. And they got to be good buddies. Time went on. Matthew was a first grader in school. He came home from this Arkansas school one day and said to me, Mom, am I not an American? And she said, well, of course you're an American. And he said, the kids at school say I'm not an American, that I'm a Korean, and that Americans fought Koreans. Well, she said, you certainly are an American, and I'm your mother, 
And you know who your daddy is, and you know your grandmothers and grandfathers, and how much we all love you. You ignore what those people are saying to you. But she said, the next time we went to see my mother and father, little Matthew ran to that old maroon recliner to speak to his granddad, and he said to him, Poppy, why do people not like Koreans? What did we do wrong that America had to fight Korea? And she said, I rushed in to stop this, and my father held up his hand and said, you did nothing wrong. There were some people who lived in the northern part of your country who were overrunning the southern part of your country, and we went to help. Your people in the south fought really hard and bravely for their freedom. I know I fought beside them. And now look, here you are. Terry said, I went in the kitchen to talk to my mother and left it with them. And I would hear them every time we went over. Little Matthew had more questions about this Korean War, more about that war, and my father trying to answer every time. And finally she said in one of their conversations, I heard our little boy say, Poppy, I'm sorry you had to go fight. And Poppy said to him, Well, Matthew, war is a terrible thing. And losing friends is a terrible thing. But in the end, we did a good thing because you got to come and be my grandson and I got to be your granddaddy. And she said, I saw these precious little brown hands reach up to my father and pat his cheeks and said, Oh, Poppy, you're my hero. And she said, I saw my dad squeeze his arms around this precious child, hug him to his chest, and a big tear dribbled down the left side of his cheek and off his chin. The first time in my life I had ever seen my father cry. And I went back to the kitchen. I knew things were going to be fine. The power of grace, the power of grace to transform, to change, to make right. Number three, I was made a servant, it said. I was made a servant. Now, here the word for servant is diakonos. It is most often translated from the Greek into one who waits on tables. Remember Jesus saying to his disciples one day, you know who is greater, the one who eats at the head table or the one who waits tables? Of course you do. But I tell you, I am among you as one who waits on tables. And we... We are supposed to be they who wait on tables, who are servant, not seeking what we want, what we desire, nearly so much as what the others need may be. Last year was a year of meetings for United Methodists. Just every fourth year do we have delegates come from all over the United Methodist world for a general conference that was held in Fort Worth, Texas, in late April, early May. Then in mid-July, Methodists from an 11-state area here in the central part of our country came together to elect bishops to replace those either deceased or retiring. One of the delegates who was at both of those conferences was a young woman minister named Kathleen Baskin-Ball. She's from the Dallas area. I was pastoring a church in Allen, Texas, once a small little town north of Dallas, now a bedroom community booming with new housing all around. 
Kathleen was elected number one clergy delegate from the North Texas Conference and was leading that delegation effectively in Fort Worth and again in Dallas in July. But all of us who lived nearby knew that she was diagnosed two years ago this month, January 2007, with a very aggressive malignancy. Uh, she and her husband had talked about what she should do next. They sought out all the advice they could. Uh, she had the surgery. She had the radiation. She had the chemo. Uh, she went into remission for a time. But by late this summer, about 18 months after diagnosis, it had returned. And this time, there was evidence it was in her brain now. She had not missed a Sunday. Through all of that, she had not missed a Sunday with her congregation. Um, the last Sunday in November, uh, confirmation. She baptized and confirmed more than three dozen children that day. But she was under care of hospice by that time. She missed the first Sunday in December, in the last, last Sunday in November, and died December 2nd. She had planned her funeral with her husband and other clergy whom she loved and respected. Her congregation, the church in Allen, wouldn't hold the crowd. They had decided to have the funeral at First Methodist Church Richardson, so it would. They had over 2,000 people there. The Methodist community came together to celebrate her life. One of the ministers told about her many successes. She organized a Hispanic church in Dallas called Nueva Esperanza. She then pastored the Greenland Church, and then she went to Allen, where she'd had tremendous success. A 600-member church had become a 1,500-member church under her leadership and guidance. And then the minister who was telling all of these wonderful things about Kathleen looked right at her five-year-old sitting on the front row with his daddy and said, And Skyler, the last visit I had with your mom, she said, end your remarks by looking Skyler right in the eye and saying, Your mom loves you more than all the M&Ms in the world. And this little five-year-old jumped up and said, I knew that already. I knew that already. That my mama loved me as all of these others knew that already. That she loved them all. Loved them all because she had become a servant of the Lord Jesus. Number four, let's get to the heart of this. We Gentiles are also loved of God. We Gentiles are also loved of God. What's so sad is how Christians for 2,000 years have decided if we're loved, then God has quit loving the Jews. And we've made life miserable, intolerable for them for 2,000 years in so many different ways. I resolved when I really got to know two of my professors at Centenary College who were Jews, who were forced out of the University of Berlin when Hitler came to power just because they were Jews, that I would do whatever I could to try to make peace between the Christians I know and the Jews I know. You know that a few years ago, Gail agreed to go with me to see three of the best preserved of the concentration camps there in Poland. We went to Majdanek. We went to Auschwitz. We went to Birkenau. We're planning our vacation for this year. And I asked Gail if she would go with me to see some camps in Germany. And she said she would. We intend to fly to Berlin let me mention just four places we intend to go. We're going to Dachau because in this very place, Rabbi Hermann Schalman stood and said, I was a student in this country 
because all colleges and universities were barred to Jews after Adolf Hitler. And my family sacrificed everything they needed to to get me to America so I could go to college. And while I was over here, my mother and father were arrested just because they were Jews. And my father died in prison in Munich and my mother died at Dachau. I need to be there. I, Gail and I think we need to be at Dachau. We want to go to Flossenburg. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a young Lutheran pastor and theologian who finally decided that all that Hitler was doing was so bad, so evil and vile that he and his sister's husband and their uncle um, plotted against Hitler's life. One of 14 or 15 plots against his life. They were eventually discovered and were thrown into the concentration camp at Flossenburg. And just a couple of weeks before the liberation forces came, they were humiliated by being stripped of all their clothes, marched out naked in the cold winds of that early spring, and hanged at Flossenburg. Gail and I want to go there, to Flossenburg. Bergen-Belsen. Anne Frank. Three times Gail and I have been to Amsterdam, and all three times we've been to the Anne Frank apartment. Something draws us there to be in that tiny space. When Anne and her family had to go into hiding in that apartment in Amsterdam, she was exactly the age our granddaughter Abigail is right now. And for two years, she and her family had to hide, never once going outside for two years. Anne furiously writing a diary during that time, talking about church bells she could hear that, that lifted her heart, that boosted her spirit. When you're in that apartment now, you can hear those church bells. Same ones. They're still ringing after all these years. After two years of hiding, their family were betrayed. The Nazis came and arrested them. And Anne and her family died at Bergen-Belsen. We need to be there. We're also going to Ravensbrück, one of the worst. Corey Tinboom was there. Gail and I took a train down to Harlem in, in Netherlands to see the home of the Tinboom family. They were watchmakers. Uh, when Corey was a young woman, she was trained and taught, apprenticed to be a watchmaker herself. One of the few women doing that at the time. Uh, the Tin Boom home has been preserved all these years. It's still a, a beautiful place. But as the Nazis overran the Netherlands, uh, the Tin Booms started hiding Jewish friends. Um, just a few at first. We saw how they had altered the interior of the home so that they could hide these Jews when, when people came to check. But eventually there were so many coming in and being fed and sheltered and then hurried on to safe places when safe places could be made available. Eventually they too were betrayed. And the Nazis came and put all the Ten Boom family into, into prison. Their father lasted only ten days. Uh, Corey and her sister Bessie were sent to Ravensbrook. And her sister got so sick. Typhus killed many. Typhus is what killed Anne Frank at Bergen-Belsen. And Bessie got very sick. They could look out the windows through the barbed wire and see the huge pits the Nazis were digging where they were burying Jews and Gentiles who had befriended Jews. And as Corey held Bessie in her arms, Bessie said, no matter how deep the pit, the love of our God is deeper still. Amen.